This is Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast. And this is Chris John Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. And you're listening to the official podcast of the first 2011 conference in Vienna, Austria. To find out more, please visit the site at www.first.org. And now we join our interview in progress. This time on the podcast, we're lucky enough to be talking to Iftak Ian Amit, the VP Consulting over at Security Art. At this year's first conference, Ian is going to be talking about data exfiltration, in particular regarding methods to exfiltrate data that companies may not be looking for and existing protections may not be examining and protecting against. I started off by asking Ian for a quick overview of his talk. What the talk is all about is data exfiltration. And I am going through a little bit of background in terms of uh, how do we even get into infiltration before we start exfiltrating data, which means basically stealing data from an organization. And I'm looking at at new techniques that, uh, that we started finding out as we were running red team testing engagements uh, for a few semi-government or high-security clients at situations where we did not really have any network connectivity outside of the facility that we managed to infiltrate into. So the talk highlights a couple of techniques. Some of them are more physical. Some of them are just pure awesomeness of, uh, of managing to, to take data in a digital form transform it to to something that initially struck me as, well, that's obvious. That's how we did it in the 80s. And basically transforming it into sounds and uh, transmitting it over uh, voice channels to be later recorded in a, you know, in a voicemail and then downloaded and re-decoded back into data. And so that's the gist of the whole, the whole talk. It, it really is a, some, some may call it advanced data exfiltration, uh, some uh, some people actually looked at it and said, well, that it kind of covers both infiltration and exfiltration and, and command and control. So it's, it's kind of a pen testing or a red team talk. The innovative thing for me there is really the, the high-end data exfiltration techniques. So It sounds uh, interesting. And one of the things that kind of strikes me is that I think in most circumstances, I don't know whether or not you agree with this, this kind of data exfiltration is very interesting, but I'm not sure is it really needed. I mean, most companies just don't have any kind of protection when it comes to exfiltrating data. They're going to let you send anything outside the network because they're more concentrated on keeping people out of the network than they are on keeping the data in the network. Well, you're correct. I see it from from two different angles. First one is sometimes you do need that data that you know, quote unquote, sexy data exfiltration technique to to make sure that you can get your hands on on the really interesting data, because if you don't and you just end up with, there you go, I managed to break into your network, now fix it, you're not really getting the right impact. And uh, and a lot of times we do need to to fancy fancy things up a little bit to make sure that the organization really understand what are the implications of of a security breach. The second angle is, uh, is relevant to a slightly smaller kind of customer base, which is the more, more secure organizations that do have protection techniques, uh, DLT systems, more advanced content filtering systems, endpoint control, and so on and so forth, and is really focused on, on changing their mindset from a purely technological one where they look at, uh, oh, look at that, there's a new DLT vendor with you know, some new features in their product that don't exist in the other products, so let's buy this. Or look at that firewall module. We need that to prevent data coming out of uh, over, I don't know, uh, HTTP forms. 
and get them to a mindset of looking at what is the important data in the organization. Look, you know, take a data-centric approach and start drawing circles around the data rather than focusing on the technology in the different layers. So, so it really depends on, on the situation, but I do think that it is usable in both cases. Do you think these companies are fighting a losing battle when it comes to data exfiltration? Because there's so many different possibilities of, of ways to encode, ways to, to encrypt things, different kind of channels to use, out-of-band channels, whether it's physical or, or using things, as you said, using the uh, the audio channels to, to exfiltrate data. Is there just so many options to get the data out that companies are going to be fighting a losing battle? Or do you really think that there is a possibility that companies can really protect against this kind of thing? To tell you the truth, I do think it's a losing battle, but it's not from the sense of look at how many techniques there are for data exfiltration and encoding and, and obfuscating, but from a simple education standpoint. Most organizations, you know, again, focus on getting products to solve their problems, whereas they should focus on training their employees, getting you know, more awareness campaigns. I'm actually for investing you know, the, the budgets more in the people than in, in the technologies. I can guarantee you that a well-trained, well-educated organization is going to be much more protected from a you know, heavily technology-invested organization. You, know, the, you just cannot firewall stupid. Which is a pity. Um, I know. It's, I've been looking for that rule all over the place. <laughs> no one supports it. Do you see this kind of stuff being used in the wild? Do you see the need for it to be used in the wild? Or is it so easy for, for people to exfiltrate data at the moment that it's just not really needed? Well, we do see it uh, being used in the wild. It's not like we've uh, you know, completely invented this thing from scratch. It's, uh, we, we've taken a few concepts from, from here, a few concepts from there. Obviously, we're not going to see this used in the common malware, you know, the, the the botnets, the, the Zeus's, the spy eyes, Cabrips, whatever it is, to to pull data out. They you know they usually just zip it, um, encrypt it, and, and FTP it over, and, and then call it APT. We do see it in more uh, specialized situations where you're looking at at the more aggressive adversary target, real targeted attacks that focus on uh, on facilities that are a little harder to both penetrate as well as exfiltrate. But again, it's, 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 a, it's not just an exercise in look how cool or, or how sneaky I can be, but also an exercise in making sure that, uh, that the organization is, is really thinking about all the different options. And I think that it, it expands a little further. I mean, if I can encode data into sound and send it over voice over IP, it just means that the voice over IP channels are not as well scrutinized as web channels. In the same manner, I, I, could, uh, I could take a Word document and uh, run a, a text-to-speech process on it and just speak out the data and save it in a voicemail. Is someone transcribing voice conversations in an organization, much like they are uh, doing for emails? Well, I could imagine there's a couple of possible issues with that. Depending on where you happen to be in the world, there's a higher possibility that legally you're not permitted to listen to employees' phone calls. I've ran into this in multiple locations. As long as you can tap into their emails and web traffic, you can do the same for phone calls. And just like you can untap, quote unquote, when, when the employee goes to a banking website, you can do the same by whitelisting specific phone numbers for, I don't know, again, banking, financial services, uh, mistresses, <laughs> whatever it is, because this is company information. This is company infrastructure that the employee is using. 
I can imagine that would be a, a reasonable argument, especially in high security environments where this kind of stuff is is very restricted. Sure, sure. Um, the other the other query I had is, is encoding things into an audio um, and then sending it out through the VoIP system, sending it out through voicemails. It sounds really interesting. It sounds like a, a great demo, but how realistic is that to to shovel large amounts of data from an internal network out? It's going to be significantly slower than just sending the actual file itself. Yeah, of course. Text-to-speech was was just one example that, uh, that again, focuses or or kind of opens the eyes of organizations in terms of what are we doing to listen in or or to monitor those those communication channels. The technique that I'm going to demonstrate at at the conference is actually using encoding to sounds, which is much more uh, more efficient and has a lot of optimizations that I, I still haven't put into the proof of concept code. That can that can further optimize the rate of transfer that uh, that we can send out files. Now you do have to remember that this since this is a fairly unmonitored channel and I can make 800 calls and basically go unnoticed for weeks. I can chunk chunk out data in uh, 30 minute uh, voice chunks and just keep saving them as voicemails day and night uh, or work according to work hours and just download those at at my free time and reassemble decode. And, and that's about it. And uh, and again, we have proven that it is useful. Uh, obviously, we're not gonna, you know, this this is gonna be far fetched to take a few gig uh, database and encode it into audio. But uh, when you're looking at targeting specific data, looking for specific documents, for specific blueprints, and so on and so forth, it's uh, it's fairly easy and it's fairly quick to exfiltrate uh, a, a nice hefty amount of data using uh, using audio encoding. I can imagine you can transfer a serious amount of credit card numbers and oh yeah, that's that's super easy. And again, just remember how uh, how we used to do it in in the eighties. Uh, everything was was audio back then. Yeah, everything old is new again. <laughs> Hell yeah! Going to to some of the other stuff that you're working on at the moment, I know that you're involved in the the new DefCon group over in Israel. How did that really come come into being? Yeah, as as almost everything that uh, that I do in my free time that turns into a you know community project, it all starts with a, a rant, which is more often a drunken rant, you know, with a few friends talking about how, in this specific case, how there's no community, uh, no security community in Israel. We kept me- meeting each other at airports and you know all over the world, and uh, we're always laughing about the fact that we've never you know bumped into each other back home and where we live literally 10, 20 minutes from each other, but only in conferences once or twice a year. So after you know just bitching and ranting, uh, we decided to pick up the glove myself and uh, Isaac Kotler, who's also my colleague at, at Security Art. We just put out an announcement that says, "Hey guys, we we're." Setting up a DEFCON 9723, it's the Israeli Tel Aviv DEFCON. If anyone wants to join us, we'll be here and there, you know, in, in the local pub. And we literally expected no more than 10, 15 people. And so we coordinated everything with, uh, with the DEFCON in, in, uh, in the U.S., called the pub. And I think that about a week after we posted this on, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and all, all other different channels, the number of people that accepted or, or uh, noted some kind of interest and said that they'll be coming have surpassed, I think, the 200 people mark. At that point, we realized that we better find a new place because no one is, you know, no, no pub owner in his right mind is going to allow over 100 geeks. Some of them probably don't drink or, or are not in the drinking age to to clog his uh, his uh, venue and we found a, a nice venue to do this on, on one of the rooftops in, in the Tel Aviv uh, office area 
We had a phenomenal first meeting. We had over about 150, almost 200 people that actually attended the first meeting. And ever since then, we're having a meeting every month. Every meeting, we're having two talks. One is an advanced one. One is a basic one. A lot of people. I mean, the, the, the youngest attendee we've had was uh, about 13, and he arrived with his dad. <laughs> and the oldest ones are in their late 60s, I would imagine. And so it's, it's really diverse and really interesting. And, and you know what? The fact that we've managed to run this month after month, two talks in each month, and we, we have a queue of speakers uh, lined up for at least two and a half, three months ahead of us with a solid tending crowd of at least 70 people for each meeting is just, just blows my mind. Every time I see this, it's, it's out of this world. It's amazing. I've been to a lot of conferences that have less than you know, 150, 200 people to suddenly just kind of throw up an announcement, we're all meeting at a pub, please come down. And suddenly <laughs> have 200 people turn up is shocking. It's, it's amazing that you can kind of suddenly garner that kind of interest and really kind of build a, a good stable base for an ongoing meeting in such a short time. Yeah, it, it, again, it's just an, another indication that surprisingly we were right and there was a need, there was a thrive for some kind of security community in, in, a, you know, in a country that, that's really known in the high-tech industry for its security people. Dozens of companies here are security companies, a lot of talent, and it's just not, not showing up. There were a couple of previous attempts to do conferences and stuff like that, but it, they went out uh, pretty, pretty quickly after the conference itself. And everything is very commercialized. We also you know, are very strict about not getting any commercial content. We're actually adding now uh, additional activities, uh, a lot of community projects that are expanding to, to different venues. We're having a hackathon uh, next month in, in, uh, in one of the universities here, uh, which, which uh, again, is, is I think we have six or seven projects line, lined up right now for the hackathon that look pretty awesome. They're way beyond the stuff I could do <laughs> for myself. So I guess, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's another sign that the community really is embracing this uh, notion of community and is, is ready to, to grow, finally. Taking that notion of community and, and getting people and bringing people together, I mean, I've seen some recent blowback from people within the industry complaining that there is just too many security conferences, security meetings, <laughs> and things like that. And Tell me about it. <laughs> well, I think they, they calculated and, and they said something like there's, there's 250 days of a year you can attend a security conference. You, can, you, yeah. could, you could physically fly around the world to every security conference and never go home. Because yeah, I think they, in October they, they counted more conferences than the actual days in October or something stupid like that. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it seems to come to a peak around that kind of time. But it's amazing that there's a place there where still people aren't getting something local to them so it's it's good to see that the community are coming together because I know all the B-Sides events are selling out all the tickets are going really quickly so there still is a demand there and it's amazing considering the amount of people who actually work in security that there's still a thriving interest in, in new community uh, efforts and new community meetings yeah, but I, I think it's, it's the localization effect. It's, uh, B-sides have been a huge success. I'm not talking just about the, the Vegas B-sides, but the, the more local ones. And I do think it's, it's because of the fact that they are local. They're, they're very focused on the local community. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that people don't want to fly hours and hours just to go to, to a security event where you know, they should have one every month or every twice a year or whatever it is that fits the community uh, right in their backyards. And I do believe that local communities can grow out 
a lot of great content and you don't have to fly all the rock stars you know from from around the world to to fill up a, a lineup for for a you know a speaker lineup the local speakers and the local um, talent that, that comes to those kind of events is, is almost more important than the people who are flying in because yep. they're the people who are really speaking for the community they're the people who are really speaking for what people in that area are interested in and, and one of the things i have seen is that for example in b-sides in las vegas has a very very different set of people speaking and a very different set of topics than besides london and obviously the defcon group you you've got specific topics that are interesting to the people there i think that's a, a very important aspect yeah, yeah, and again, we like to keep it diverse. And and another contributory factor is the fact that it's a local speaker. You know, if if something that that the speaker says struck your interest, you know, is driving you to contribute to work on that project, it's it's less of a telecommute. You know, Skype, email, back and forth. You can actually sit down with them a few times a week, or or you know, communicate much more easily because it's local and actually get stuff done. So, so I, I think again that it it's a it's a huge you know proving ground for new projects and and speakers that do come in and talk at at the local events do get much more than just speaking at you know at events worldwide because the community is here. You're going to get immediate response. You can follow up and you can keep keep working with those people who are interested in that in that project and get stuff done much more much more easily. So I mean I guess that brings us quite neatly into to one of the other projects that you're still trying to get off the ground from from what I yep. know is, is this, <laughs> the 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 setup of a a non-governmental cert in Israel. Just to kind of start off, I mean, what was the need for that? Why did you really really want to do a non-governmental cert in Israel? Again, this this is going to be a, a defining line in everything I do. It started from an incident that I have uh, handled and wanted to report on it. I ended up working with 86 different countries to which I could report because there was a local cert that uh, had open lines of communication, very distinct, very, uh, very defined. And pushing that around was fairly easy. I also worked with uh, CERTCC who handled a lot of the coordination efforts. And, and the one country that I couldn't coordinate anything in was my hometown, was Israel. There are a couple of certs here one is an academic one that covers probably a third of the actual academia. And the other one is, is a government cert that only co covers the, the government websites. And there's the local police that handles some aspects of uh, computer crime, but you know they didn't care about this specific computer crime, the, the, the whole botnets and, and the, uh, financial fraud. And there are a couple of other organizations, like government organizations, that, that do have some kind of affinity to computer security. But I was having trouble just co communicating, coordinating everything here. And I wanted you know, some, some local focal, single focal point that I can say, hey, here's a big bad file with all the data of the criminals, of the victims, of whatever it is. You deal with it. You notify whoever needs to be notified. You make sure that the victims are notified, that the, you know, the, the, the intermediary you know, websites that are distributing the malware are notified, that law enforcement is notified and is coordinated with other law enforcement agencies. And I couldn't find any. I was getting the runaround. I was getting you know, into bu bureaucratic drags. You know, I was getting to a point where I had to make phone calls and, and someone actually asked me to fax something over. I mean, seriously, in a cert. <laughs> so that kind of boiled around for a bit. Um, I kept working with, with a few organizations here up to a point where I decided that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start 
this by myself. There's obviously a gap and a need in the community, in, in the local uh, constituency. I said, all right, let, let's, what, what do we need to do to start a, a local non-government civilian cert? And that started about uh, a year ago, a year and a few months ago. And ever since then, I've been trying to fight windmills, <laughs> figure out uh, a legal entity under which uh, this can be done, make sure that everyone is pleased and, and you know, and is not threatened uh, or, you know, getting their egos under, under scrutiny or whatever it is. So it's, it's been a lot of uh, bureaucratic and political work. In the meantime... I did manage to recruit uh, quite a few guys from the local DEFCON group that are volunteer handlers. So they're actually waiting for stuff to happen or for the legal entity to, fi to be finalized so they, they can start dealing with stuff. So again, it's, it's another uh, drunken rant that turned into or, or is trying to turn into something uh, more real. Uh, the funny thing is that I've spoken at uh, last year's first conference where I, I thought that by the actual conference we would have some kind of entity. So I submitted to that, and obviously there wasn't something that I could stand behind back then. And sadly enough, still, you know, in this year's first conference, there still is not a civilian Israeli cert that you can report computer incidents to. So, um, you know, in the meantime, I've been getting a few... Uh, messages and calls to handle incidents from, from other certs that I've met during the, the past year and a half uh, and managed to, to do some coordination and pass them along to the right people. But again, this, this is a liability that I, I you know, don't really want for myself as an individual and I'd rather work as a formal cert that can uh, take that liability and do the communication. So I've, I've been relying mostly on personal connections so far uh, and I, you know, I really want to see this move on to something that that's more substantial. I mean, obviously, you, you've you've got a plan there. You know what you want to achieve. You've got the volunteers who have come forward and said that they're willing to help you achieve that. It's just sad that there's so much red tape that's blocking you from doing what what needs to be done or, or what you'd really like to do. What's the main thing that's stopping that? Is there someone or something in the background that that doesn't want that to take place, or is it simply there's always this much bureaucracy involved? Well, there, there are a few organizations that do feel, and, and again, this is my personal interpretation, so you know, don't, don't sue me or anything like that. There is a feeling that a couple of organizations feel threatened by the fact that there would be another cert here, especially from the government. I mean, the, the current government cert is kind of iffy about it. There is a, a new initiative that was declared by the government to, to create a cyber security something body in the context of the entire country that is not just government, uh, which, which again is, is, is just another huge line of red tape and, and political assignments and you know, bodies bringing their bodies and stuff like that. There's actually a, a large need from the police and the different law enforcement agencies that I, I, was, I did speak with, and they actually raised, you know, they, they, they feigned a, a pretty high interest in having something like that because obviously for them it's, it's free information and, and more, you know, more data sources and more communication paths that, uh, that they can establish through a local trusted organization that funnels them, you know, the data from foreign organizations. And on top of that, it's, it's the red tape, you know, it's... it's declaring a corporation or non-for-profit and, and making sure that it stands by itself and the lawyers and the accountants and 
and the organizations that started popping up, like uh, the, the, the Internet Society and other like internet organizations who have, again, uh, people that have a certain interest to have something like that under that organization, but are not doing enough about it, but are willing to do enough to not make it happen if it's not under their organization. So it's, 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 it's managing people. I call it herding cats. This is my day job, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm used to it. Well, I hope that the, the situation resolves itself, hopefully for, for next year's first conference, if it can't be for <laughs> yeah. this year's, um, because yeah. I, I think there's a need there, as you said, I mean, there's there's no one that's taking control of that area, and it's, it's a big gap. All of these big problems are falling into a gap where no one's really managing it, and I think that's really important for, for someone to step up, and I'm glad that someone like yourself has stepped up to say, I'm willing to do this, I just hope that uh, the powers that be give you the, the backing that you need to actually get this done. Yep. Yeah, thank you. I know that uh, you've spoken at the first conference before. I mean, what really kind of interests you about the first conference? What makes it a special conference for you? It's definitely a different conference than, than most conferences that I usually go to. Uh, it's, it's a slightly different crowd. I think that the fact that you see a lot of organizations from, from all over the world that have the same kind of interest is very, very defining for, for the first conference. I mean, you can find... People from all sorts of, of disciplines and, and, and areas of interest in, in most other conferences. Here, it's very focused on incident handling, coordination, uh, a lot of education, a lot of uh, uh, intelligence and learning and process uh, and processing processing data and information. In my eyes, it's a very it's a highly specialized conference. Yet, the fact that people come from all over the world makes it very very heterogenic so so it's very interesting it's i, I love hanging out with with the different uh, uh, certain organizations whether government or corporate it's just uh, it's just you always learn new stuff so it's it's fascinating for me thanks for listening to this interview on the official first podcast you've been listening to martin mckay from the network security podcast and Christian Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. You can find out more about the FIRST conference and this podcast at www.first.org. Thank you very much for listening. See you in Vienna. Vienna.